Welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Rachel, welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Thank you so much for inviting me. Excited to be here and uh, chat about sulfurous off aromas, which is not a thing most people will say, I guess. No, I'm excited. I'm genuinely excited. We haven't done many um, like P3 type ones, and um, it's, this is quite topical, I think. So uh, anyway, I, I always like to start by asking people, who are you, what do you do, and why are you qualified to talk about what we're going to talk about? All right. Uh, well, my name is Rachel Allison. I am a recent PhD grad from... Cornell's uh, food science program, where, which is where our viticulture enology concentration is situated in the university. Um, my research is in sulfurous off aromas, or particularly hydrogen sulfide, and how it develops during anoxic storage in wines. So I guess that would be my leading qualification, um, having spent a couple of years looking at particularly how hydrogen sulfide develops how it can be treated, looking a lot at copper fining, and the stability of copper fining treatments. And then more recently, I got into uh, learning and researching the interactions between hydrogen sulfide and aluminum can packaging, um, and looking at the well, some of the reductive issues that can come up with alternative packaging like aluminum cans, and um, looking at ways to predict how that might how that might pan out during storage. Um, the uh, the 10 second version of my thesis is that some wines smell like rotten eggs and I can tell you how much and occasionally I can also tell you why. <laughs> Perfect. I like it. Um, well can you if you can give us like a good place to start I suppose would be um, a definition of reductive faults and reductive taints and um, uh, hydrogen sulfide obviously mentioned if you go through like the major compounds and the major um, faults that you get in wine. Sure well we look at hydrogen sulfide mainly as a marker of reduction so it's pretty ubiquitous in wines that have reductive faults even though in and of itself it's not the most problematic compound so hydrogen sulfide is going to form during most fermentation. It's going to be a byproduct of uh, sulfate assimilation. And so particularly when yeast struggles, you're going to have accumulation of hydrogen sulfide at points in the assimilation pathway, and you're going to end up with hydrogen sulfide in the wine. And the reason the hydrogen sulfide itself is not that big of a deal, because it's such a small molecule, it's extremely light, it'll pretty much volatilize on its own. It will, at least during fermentation, it'll blow off. I mean, it's, it is really light and, um, kind of like along with, uh, CO2 being produced, um, you lose, you're going to lose any hydrogen sulfide through entrainment. Um, the main issue with, so, uh, hydrogen sulfide in and of itself, not the biggest problem that you can encounter. And even when you have it in glass, unless it's at a, like exceptionally high levels, it's not. It's something that you can swirl off in the glass, like our whole ritual of like swirling the wine a little bit. That can serve to just volatilize any low levels of hydrogen sulfide that are in the glass. So that whole exercise of um, 
opening the bouquet, opening the wine, a lot of that is just getting rid of low levels of hydrogen sulfide that are masking our ability to smell other things. So it's, I mean, a bit less poetic than swirling to open the bouquet, but it, that's chemically what's happening. So it, when people, is that a common cause when people say wine's closed? Or is that just part it's of it? It's one of them. It's one of them, yeah. Yeah, it's okay. part of it, yeah. Um, or rather... Yeah, low levels of hydrogen sulfide can definitely contribute to a wine being kind of closed. So it'll be a low enough level of hydrogen sulfide that you're not going to... Most people would not be able to identify it as like, oh yes, this stinks of rotten eggs. It wouldn't. It would just be, this doesn't... It's not as aromatic as it should be. Something's off. Why is it closed? Why is the wine like tight? Um, and hydrogen sulfide, like I said, volatilizes pretty readily. So literally swirling it is enough energy input to evaporate hydrogen sulfide. So that's, um, and we study hydrogen sulfide just because it's most likely to be there if a wine has other reductive faults. But we don't study it because it is, I guess, the most impactful compound down the line. So hydrogen sulfide, in addition to being small and light, is also very reactive. So it will react with other things in the wine matrix that can lead to, I guess, some of the more problematic uh, sulfur compounds. So you get into your methylmercaptans, ethylmercaptans, and you can get down to disulfides. And those are a little heavier, also smelly, and <laughs> not as likely to be volatilized as easily. So a little bit more challenging to deal with um, just in terms of like swirling is not going to be enough to get rid of them. So we focus on hydrogen sulfide as what, you know, as a marker for reduction. And like, so a lot of like my work was developing a method for measuring hydrogen sulfide in the wine matrix and then using it as an indicator compound and seeing how it behaved, you know, in reaction to copper, in reaction to, you know, when, well, in the can wine system, like looking at how hydrogen sulfide is formed instead of looking at other sulfur compounds. Um, but yeah, I guess there, there are some other sources of reductive compounds that can occur, but there's kind of like more, like very more specific, um, chemical circumstances that can lead to that less. So the, the hydrogen sulfide, I guess, uh, based compounds, like there's uh, some enzymatic, there's a, uh, let's see. You know, acid degradation can lead to some um, sulfur residues from sprays can lead to some, but the the circumstances vary. And there, uh, are all are there any you know particularly like mercaptan type compounds or anything that are always faults? Because obviously things like benzomercaptan, you know, I really like it in wines, but um, some people don't. But uh, are there uh, or is it always just a bit about balance? I think it's really about balance. Um, I think. Uh, at least from uh, from a research perspective, we deal with such extreme levels of these compounds that like anything I'm dealing with, I'm like, yeah, that's a fault for right. sure, for sure. But, <laughs> <laughs> and like hydrogen, so hydrogen sulfide is, you can detect, like we can detect that in wine at half a part per billion, maybe half to one and a half parts per billion. And so like that is very, that's a very impactful odorant. Um. And yet I have, you know, made model wine, wine samples, storage samples in the lab where 
I stopped measuring the amount of hydrogen sulfide at like a thousand parts per billion. I stopped measuring because I was like, well, obviously this, this is not, these conditions are not good for storage. <laughs> um, and so at very low levels, not, I would say you can make an argument for complexity in, in a lot for a lot of sulfur compounds. And I would agree. I actually also like a little bit of like benzyl mercaptan. I like, you know, wines that get into that a bit smoky, struck like flinty, sometimes the coffee aromas, things that like sometimes there can be a bit uh, in the fault category. But from a research, research perspective, it's, I think a lot about determining extremes to give like uh, boundary conditions. So like create like a, so there's a huge solution space of great wines. Right. And like we do research at like pretty extreme levels to find out what would happen if you push this factor to as far as it can go. And like, what does that mean chemically about what's going that can tell us, you know, in like a big way, chemically what's going on and that can inform winemaking, but it doesn't really inform like the nuance of great wine. Okay. Well, I suppose, um, an easy, question to start with is um, how can unwanted volatile sulfur compounds in wine be avoided um, and what are the biggest mistakes that you think people make in a winemaking capacity? Hmm, I guess to avoid well like we were like yeah, I think you'd said you know is it about balance and it's it's always about balance also with this reductive aromas like how do you have no reductive aromas? I mean, make an oxidized wine, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Yeah. And so, enough. like the whole thing with like these reductive aromas is that you create um, a re you're creating uh, a very low oxygen environment that favors the stability of these sulfurous compounds. And so, if you introduce a bit of oxygen, it's going to favor that those compounds less. But the question is, in doing that do you then promote ultimately the formation of a bunch of other compounds that you didn't want in the first place? Um, so, you know, any protective winemaking is how we really str strongly protective winemaking is how we end up with a lot of sulfur compounds, really um, low oxygen closures is how we end up with reductive compounds. So it's more like a balance of modern protective winemaking and understanding the kind of packaging you're heading for understanding the kind of like storage situation you're heading for which is you know all knowledge that winemakers have about their about the wines that they're making um but it's uh i guess being up to date on like what the packaging is likely to do for any particular type of wine so like, I guess historically the issues in winemaking would have leaned more towards like issues of oxidation, not issues of reduction. But as we get, have gotten better at keeping oxygen out of the process, as we've gotten better, well, quote unquote, better packaging, you know, packaging with less oxygen ingress, bottling process with less oxygen, that ceased to be our problem, but we still use a lot of techniques like oxidation is still our problem. <laughs> And so we just have all of these very, uh, all of these processes to keep oxygen out. And now they're all, they all get used together and you can end up with just really reductive environments. And it's going to favor sulfur, like it's going to favor compounds in sulfurous forms uh, that are aromatic. So things that are volatile. And 
yeah, so it's it's about it is again about balance and like understanding uh thinking I guess always thinking holistically about like the uh about the wine. So like from wine, you know, from harvest and winemaking all the way to pack through to packaging and how people are likely to drink the wine. Like if it's going to have to sit down for a long time, that's a different, you know, like uh, equi- uh, equilibration timeline than if something is only going to be drunk young. So that time for, so one of the issues that I have looked at was the reappearance of self of uh, hydrogen sulfide and sulf- sulfurous off aromas in wines during storage and particularly in wines that had been treated with copper. So if you do copper fining, it's a, you know, pretty widely accepted technique. Uh, but in the last couple of years, some research came out of uh, Australia showing that copper fining isn't, isn't doing quite what we thought it's doing. So if you have, say, hydrogen sulfide in a wine and you add copper, copper binds very readily with hydrogen sulfide. Absolutely, it's going to bind. That aroma will be effectively gone. And what we always thought happened is that that copper sulfur compound would form a, it should precipitate. If you do this in water, if you have a hydrogen sulfide solution in water and you add copper, you can literally see the precipitate form. Like it, it's visible. That means that that's a big enough particle size. If I can see it, then, then that can be filtered out. So the thought was always that if you did copper finding on a wine, you were making this precipitate and then you would, you know, just rack off or filter or whatever to remove the solids. But wine has other things going on in the solution. So like you, we weren't necessarily seeing a precipitate form, but when you filter, you're going to get something. So it was just the assumption that that precipitate was being removed. As it turns out, that precipitate um, doesn't form. It does not form particles big enough to actually filter out in wine. And so most of the copper that was being added in typical copper finding treatments was staying in the wine. So they measured the copper. They know how much they added after fining and filtering and uh, whatever stabilization. They would measure it again. And like the most copper that was removed was maybe 20%. So like 80% of that copper was staying in the wine. And that means that 80% of that hydrogen sulfide they thought they'd removed was actually still in the wine. And so you have these copper sulfhydryl complexes that are not forming particle sizes big enough to be removed and are just staying in the wine. Now, if they stay and they're stable, then that's fine for the long, for the life, you know, the lifespan of the wine. But depending on how you, how long you let it sit, depending on how long it ages and depending on how reductive that environment is, if it favors the volatile form of sulfur compounds, then that copper sulfur complex can is is reversible. It can separate again and release re, like re-release that hydrogen sulfide. And like that is what we found to be the case for different types of wines. And the stability of that complex depends on other things in the wine. I have a hypothesis. I have some evidence okay. of my hypothesis. <laughs> go on, go on, no, what was it? Is, is, is it the alcohol? Is it the acids? What, what's what's um, what's the um, hypothesis? From my work, we found that it was the interference of other sulfur compounds in wine okay. in formation of that copper sulfur complex. So, like I mentioned, when you do this in something like water, so I mean, and I've 
done this in the lab. You know, we have our hydrogen sulfide solution in water. We add our copper sulfate and I can see the particulates form. I can see the uh, precipitate form. But the only sulfur compound in there is hydrogen sulfide. And so when I form a, a, a complex out of that, it's going to form a regular crystal structure. Like the structure is just sulfur and hydrogen, uh, it's just going to be a hydrogen sulfide and copper. That means that as the particulates form, like that's a regular crystal structure, those tend to be more stable and they tend to be able to grow faster, just like as a crystal structure. But when you go into wine, like there's a lot of compounds that contain sulfur in them and copper is not selective for hydrogen sulfide. It will, re it will bind to any compound that has sulfur in it. And there's a lot of different compounds in wine that have sulfur in it. So what we think is happening is you get, instead of just forming a crystal that is like sulfur, copper, sulfur, copper, you're going to get sulfur, copper, glutathione. And just like you're going to get these big other molecules that interfere in the crystal structure. And there's some evidence, um, some other work that has shown that things like glutathione, like these organic thiols, can... Uh, can uh, halt the condensation and polymerization of copper sulfhydryl complexes. So things like glutathione can interfere in the formation of the crystal. So you end up with, you don't end up with particles that get big enough. And so if the particles never reach a critical size that you would be able to filter them out, then they're going to stay in the wine. This might sound um, a bit stupid, but in terms of, well, in terms of these sites, so these copper compounds, have they not been, like picked up by spectrometry or anything in wine analysis after copper fining? Or were people just not really looking for them? People were not really looking for them. Okay. Yeah, because I mean, if you did the copper fining, you definitely removed up some solids, you removed a precipitate, and it was just like, well, the smell went away, so we just was... <laughs> yeah, it was just like, well, it, it works, it worked, so yeah, yeah. great. <laughs> it has worked so great. Okay. Um and I think, yeah, no one had really probed on it. But then there was the other information that down the line, in some wines, we had hydrogen and sulfide reappearing. And I guess, I guess the thought had always been that like, oh, there must be some other source of hydrogen sulfide, which, you know, possible. There's, there's a couple of sources of hydrogen sulfide and sulfur itself is like, there's a lot of things with sulfur in a wine matrix. So it could be coming from somewhere else. Um, but yeah, literally no one had really checked for how much of this copper have we actually taken <laughs> out of here? It was just like, well, we added it. We know it forms a precipitate like in other solutions. Like it's been shown to for like, there was no question that it is binding with hydrogen sulfide. It was just that it's forming like nanoparticles or nano clusters. There's a little debate as to the terminology, but yeah, particles of size that aren't being filtered. Even if you were to filter it at like pretty aggressive pore size, it it's smaller than that. So, and no one is going to be, no one was going to be filtering like lower than 0.2 anyway. So, um, and even like, even at 0.2, like I said, it was like maybe 20% of that copper was removed. So it, uh, yeah, it's what it's like one of the interesting things, I guess, in the research side of wine where you're like, did nobody check this? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, yay for me, because I get to go and do a bit of like research and spend some time in the lab. But it's interesting to like read, uh, read that as like an overall story in wine and then realize like, oh, somebody did just, 
because I think like the paper that checked this was published in like 2015. So like really not that long ago. <laughs> um, and that has kind of like reshaped how we look at copper funding. And the other thing, the other thing with it is like most things in wine, it depends on the wine. So sometimes copper finding works great and it, it seems, per it seems stable enough and other times it's not. So the number of times it was, it, it was not working. It seemed plausible that the reappearance of hydrogen sulfide could be coming from some other source. It wasn't, it, not, very few things are, are like super clear and uh, clean cut in wine, just because the matrix changes so much, even within, you know, the same uh, winery or the same vineyard site, the same grape variety, like there's so much variation. Um, yeah, so my, my thoughts were that it is other sulfur compounds that are interfering in the growth of the copper sulfhydryl complex, which makes it harder to remove. So wines with higher levels of glutathione are going to make less stable copper complexes. And so wines with higher glutathione are going to make complexes that are easier to uh, re-release hydrogen sulfide down the line. And I had some evidence of that, but I don't think it's going to be only, I only use glutathione as a model of, you know, another common bigger uh, sulfur compound in wine. But, you know, there's, a, there's other sulfur compounds that could be part of this. You just have to kind of like, well, science, you pick one and you test it and you see what happens and you try to, uh, you try to interpret what that means in the context of, well, this is one of many compounds. This is, you know, I use, you have to use pretty aggressive levels of anything to see, to see uh, real changes, especially because you use wine and the wine wines are always different. <laughs> um, model systems only go so far in, uh, in wine chemistry. So it's good to find, so I've only ever seen it as people expressing it as quite a useful reductive agent naturally occurring in wine. Like, is, do you think mm -hmm. it's something that people pay enough attention to? Or was it just, was it just a good place to start for your research? Um, kind of a good place, just a good place to start for the research. I think that, I don't think that like what I found in that particular study would ch necessarily change anybody's winemaking techniques or anything like that. Um, I think it was, it was meant to just add to the argument that copper fining isn't doing what we historically thought it was doing and that it is worth um, if not chemically testing, you know, like the composition to the compound level of every wine you make, but it is worth, uh, I guess leading it a bit, like listen, like, uh, following some of those, like the, uh, observational details from winemaking. Like if you have a wine, you're like, Oh, we do copper fining on it, but sometimes it just doesn't work. Maybe that's not the wine to do copper fining on going forward. Like that's, that is a real, there's a real reason behind that. It's not happens. I feel like sometimes in wine that you get to kind of be like, oh, well, like that just happened. Like it's a bit, you can be a bit more like, oh, it's just like a coincidence. There's no coincidences in this. This is fundamentally, this is science. Um, I don't mean that all wine has to be created by science, but fundamentally this is science. So um, it's uh, worth considering like, 
I can create a system that that is perfectly plausible that gives an outcome that is unfavorable. So this could happen if you are observing a similar outcome. There's a good reason behind it. Maybe try something else. So uh, you mentioned what's what's on the subject? Like why making my science? So you, you mentioned a second ago. Um, uh, you, you calculate the equilibrium equilibration timeline for for wines. Can you explain a little bit about how that's calculated, or is that a waste of, of everyone's time? <laughs> Um, I would not say we can calculate it precisely. It's like um, the way that uh, I guess in wine reviews, you have drinking windows and like, oh, this will be ready in X number of years. And all of that's based on like tons of, it's based on tons of experience. And uh, it's a lot of finger in the air though. Come on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's coming from like, well, based on all the wines I've seen from this house over the years, like, and based on how it tastes now, I'm, I think in about this much time. And that's kind of what we would be doing in terms of like equilibration time. Um, like how long does it take for the, say you do copper treatment on a wine, maybe those copper, uh, sulfur complexes will never reverse. Maybe they will never actually re-release hydrogen sulfide. Great. Very stable. Maybe they will release in one month. Probably not that likely. What we, our information on that equilibration time really comes from like anecdotal evidence. It comes from talking to winemakers, like how often do you see this problem? When do you see this problem? And we usually get like a year is more like the timeline we would get from people, but could be longer, could be less. It's, uh, you can definitely um, provoke the system into releasing compounds like that faster or maybe slower again temperature always great for slowing down reactions um in terms of like equilibration time the more interesting one i think for us was um on the canned wine side of things because what made it or like what started to bring it to our attention was just the speed with which hydrogen sulfide was showing up in some of these canned wines that um, people were making. And again, it's not every canned wine by any means. Um, and I think, I think cans are great packaging. Um, and I think that it's, um, I think it's super versatile and I think it's super promising. And like from a sustainability standpoint, I think very promising, but there are definitely some wines that should not be in a can. They're not, um, ideally suited. And, you know, we bought just, you know, regular, bottled wines, um, not things that were necessarily designed to go in cans, but we always wanted to see like what will happen if we take a couple of different wines and just put them in cans and see what happens over time. And some of them form hydrogen sulfide so, so quickly. Um, so we were seeing things happen in a matter of weeks instead of a matter of months. Um, and so we're dealing with, you know, a different equilibration time here and we're dealing with hydrogen sulfide coming from a different source. So there, in that case, I mean, you don't really see canned wines with like a, Oh, drink this in 2025. Like I wouldn't store a can for that long, just based on the other materials that have to go into it. But that, uh, Maybe if we did have a sense of like expiry dates with cans, <laughs> you know, we would, that would be referring to the equilibration time, I guess, on things like hydrogen sulfide. 
Well, no, uh, so I was going to ask this in a little bit uh, anyway, but now seems a good time. So what uh, what wines should be in cans, what shouldn't, in your opinion? Is there a, is there a clean, clean, easy answer to that? Uh, with pretty much no, we've never really seen any problems with red wines in cans, which is interesting. Okay. Yeah, reds were much... Uh, we're much more consistent. Uh, when we put them in cans, we had very few issues. So what we, our hypothesis about what's going on kind of comes down to there is, so all beverage cans have a thin polymer liner on the inside. So that's true of like soft drinks. It's true of juices, energy drinks, whatever. Um, and so if you take like aluminum foil and put that in wine, you will get hydrogen sulfide pretty quickly. Um, okay. Yeah. So, like, if anyone wants to get some hydrogen sulfide for a to practice faults, you can get it that way. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty. Yeah. Pretty. That's a pretty <laughs> that's really uh, pretty quick one. Um, yeah. There was some studies from back in like the 1930s where they did they tried putting different kinds of metal shavings into wine and then just like filled out a table being like, yes, it smells. No, it doesn't smell. Turned hazy, didn't turn hazy. Um, so like people have known that aluminum and wine are not a great mix since the thirties, but with this plastic liner on the inside, it's supposed to prevent interaction between the wine and the aluminum. And for the most part, it does work. But what we think is happening is that SO2 can transport through the liner react with aluminum, and then hydrogen sulfide can transport back. So hydrogen sulfide is a gas. Gases can go through plastic, like thin plastic liners, a gas can transport through that for the most part. And with SO2 at least coming from the wine bulk uh, to the aluminum side, SO2 can be, has multiple forms in wine, of course, right? Like, so we talk about like total, we talk about free, but we also talk about molecular. And molecular SO2 is a dissolved gaseous species. So a dissolved gas can permeate uh, through a plastic liner. That's our hypothesis. And if that is the case, then it can react with aluminum. And we have a lot of, you know, we saw evidence that uh, hydrogen sulfide that was formed correlated with the levels of molecular SO2, but not with the levels of free or total SO2. Okay. So we made, you know, model, we were working with model solutions, but we made model wine solutions at, uh, you know, with, uh, where we varied only the molecular SO2. We kept the total SO2 the same and varied molecular SO2. You can do that by adjusting pH and alcohol and stuff like that. And it very, and, uh, the amount of hydrogen sulfide we were forming varied quite consistently with the amount of molecular SO2. Um, and so that was kind of an interesting finding to, you can force the system to do that. Um, cause like for the most part, people are trying to reduce free SO2, but it's not in and of it. It's not, a. we were finding that that's not really enough. It's not, uh, the only factor that you have to consider, but then we also, you know, looked into changing the levels of alcohol, looked into changing, uh, well, we changed pH. We adjust pH as well. We look at dissolved uh, metals and other like typically corrosive components of beverages. 
and there seem to be a lot of interactions going on. So it's a probably more complex than just molecular SO2, but as a place to start, it was, um, it was in, honestly very interesting to see that molecular SO2, because it's the minor fraction of what's in wine, and yet it had a pretty big impact on what was going on. And you can have quite a big difference in molecular SO2, wine to wine. And the reason we thought this wasn't really an issue for red wines, say, compared to whites and rosés, um, because uh, anthocyanins tend to form, um, anthocyanins will bind to molecular SO2 in sort of like a, like a light bond. So you end up with uh, SO2 that's not really in a free form and less likely to be able to transport through a plastic liner. So like as molecular SO2 on its own could transport through, say, the polymer liner in the can. But molecular SO2 bound to, weakly bound to uh, anthocyanin, that's too big of a molecule to transport through plastic. Anthocyanins are not transporting through the plastic. So if SO2 is bound to anthocyanins, it's not transporting through the plastic. So in wines with anthocyanins, like reds, you're less likely to get SO2 at the aluminum surface where it's going to form hydrogen sulfide. And so we see almost no issues with hydrogen sulfide formation in reds um, in cans. Whites and rosés, sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't. And it seems to depend, again, on what's, how much molecular SO2 is in there, um, alcohol level, uh, pH, and then a slew of other possibly corrosive things that may have interaction effects. So is that, is that an easy one for winemakers to consider before canning? Like if they just, should they just use less SO2 or is it not that simple? Uh as a place to start, yeah, I think so. I think using less SO2 or using, particularly making sure your wine has less molecular SO2. Mm -hmm. So you could have high, uh, free, high free or total SO2 and low molecular or high free SO2 and quote unquote high molecular. So it's like a, a combination of how much SO2 did you use, but also what is the pH of your wine? Um, because that uh, partitioning between free and molecular SO2 depends on pH and nominally alcohol level as well. Are there any pHs that wine, wine in cans can't cope with? And also, so I suppose another question, better question would be what, you know, what are the kind of linings that they use? So BPA was a big one, I know, for a while. Has, that, has the technology moved on a little bit from that? Have you tried different uh, linings? The, BP, the BPA liners are... Actually, pretty effective <laughs> is what I've, you know, from talking with the people on the packaging side, BPA liners have historically performed quite well, but the regulation is to move away from them. And I think they're not allowed in California anymore, or you have to label it with BPA. And then that, you know, really, I, my understanding gets in the way from a marketing standpoint to have to say like, this contains BPA. People don't like that. So <laughs> they, they, uh, the liner technology is definitely moving away from BPA. There's like new generations of liners that don't use it. Um, some are more effective than others, but I, there is, I think, active effort to figure out a way to make these liners work for wines. But the thing is like, they're, we're not really, they were not primarily designed for wines and cans. Like wines and cans is a relatively recent phenomenon on a large scale. Um, and this issue of 
this very specific issue of molecular SO2 or some form of SO2 being a source of hydrogen sulfide is a very wine specific problem. Um, because like a lot of the cans are designed if for alcoholic beverages, maybe for, you know, RTD cocktails, maybe for particularly for beers, like well-established in the beer uh, industry, but we don't have SO2 issues in those beverages. So this would not have been an issue. And only once you started seeing wines on a large scale, did we start to see these aroma problems. And, you know, it's not like, it's not like a permanent problem. Like I expect the science to um, sort it out pretty soon, but there's always the risk that the packaging will develop a bad reputation before the science sorts out what's going on. Like there's this, uh, this eagerness to use the packaging faster than it's ready. Like it's, it's not quite universally ready yet. There's definitely things about this system that we don't understand. And so if it's a wine that's going to be drunk like relatively soon and you have good control of your distribution and you know how long things sit on the shelf, yeah, it's probably fine. But, you know, once the wine is out of your hands as a winemaker, it's, it is kind of hard to control who, like when someone buys it, were they planning to drink it today or were they going to like forget it in a cabinet and be like, oh yeah, this wine, that's when you start to get, you know, potentially issues. Um, we did um, some storage experiments out to about eight months in cans. And for most, some of them, we looked at different types of liners. We looked at different types of wines. Um, for even the best, the best packaging, we started to see problems around eight months. So, I mean, I don't know that people are storing their canned wines for eight months. I don't think that's really the the goal of them right now, but the potential for that type of packaging would depend uh, at least somewhat on like, how long is its shelf life? Like how consistently can we, how consistently can we use it for different types of wines for our, you know, new wines and um, how safe is this going to be? Like, I don't, you know, like wine is, is a, it's a high value product and it's resource intensive and all these things. And like, just the idea that like to go through all of that, just to have it get messed up by the packaging that is totally avoidable is just like not a risk. A lot of people are willing to take. So, Eight months is, yeah, that's not long. Like, especially it's not long. No, like, especially <laughs> as I, I've, <laughs> I did a tasting last week with a load of 2020 rosé in cans, which are like, I presume it obviously wasn't canned then, but like it's probably been in cans for a good eight months or so, or possibly plus. Um, yeah. yeah that's, uh, and that's the thing. Like it's, it could be fine. And some, some, there was a few that were fine, but it wasn't clear which ones were going to be fine. <laughs> and uh, still okay. unraveling, like, you know, we, it was a preliminary experiment. So we were only dealing with, uh, we looked at like 10 wines. They all behave differently. Right. So it's, this is where it, or like, this is the challenge, right? Like how do you actually predict what's happening? We were working on um, some like uh, accelerated storage tests. So we have kind of like a two week test that we're trying to like replicate the results of that eight month storage, seeing if we can do it with, um, with our uh, analytical techniques in two weeks. And again, we have like pretty good correlation, but there's some things that don't fit the trend. And so we're, you know, like there's clearly more factors than the number of things we've measured so far, which is what you expect. It's an iterative process, but 
yeah, just this idea that like, oh, it's so close, but it's not quite there. But I'm seeing a lot, a lot, a lot of canned wines. And I don't think it's ready for all of them yet. Yeah, only the reds don't have like no issues. Uh, even ones that where you can measure like low levels of hydrogen sulfide down the line for storage. At least the ones we looked at. Okay, the first thing was that we're not even sure that that low level of hydrogen sulfide even came from the aluminum interaction. Like it could be from any of the other sources of hydrogen sulfide that might naturally develop uh, in a wine. Um, and also they were such low levels that they weren't really uh, detectable. Um, it was around that uh, in the, around that concentration, like around detection threshold. So I think we were maybe measuring two parts per billion on some of them. So it's like higher than the detection reported ODA threshold, but in wine, it depends on the wine and often you can't really smell it at that point. You know, like a very aromatic or very fruity wine, like eh, you probably wouldn't be able to tell that it was hydrogen sulfide in there. Might just seem a little bit a little bit closed. And again, if you swirl it, then it's fine. So it's, uh, yeah, the TLDR of that like kind of rant was <laughs> red wines seem to be fine. Okay. But there, there seems uh, like just, just guess just like from what I've seen on, of what's on the shelves, like people seem to like to see like whites and rosés more like it's more of the, the, I guess the vibe of it. Like, to have a chilled white or rosé in a can. Like, again, cans are really good for cooling down beverages. So um, the reds are safer, but the whites and rosés seem more popular. Okay, okay. Is it, are there any things that pe the winemakers should be doing in terms of winemaking or prep before canning that would help? Um, so, I mean, we mentioned copper fining. Like, is there, would, like, micro and nano um, oxygenation make a difference? Or, or is this still just a bit too young to, to know? I don't know of anything specifically other than checking like uh, SO2, like checking SO2, like checking SO2 levels and particularly knowing your molecular SO2 going into the can. Because I know that that's not necessarily something people measure specific. Like we don't normally talk in terms of like, oh, what's the molecular SO2 levels? We talk in terms of mm. uh, free. Because the... Right, so the free SO2 is the bisulfite part, which is the antioxidant activity, and then the molecular SO2 is the uh, antimicrobial activity. And there are other ways to achieve microbial stability in wine besides using SO2, but it is very hard to achieve antioxidant activity of that degree without using SO2. So we focus on, in terms of the activity of SO2 in our wine, we, there is this, uh, men, like, men, mentality to focus on free SO2 because it's the more important, more critical function of SO2 in winemaking. But just specifically with cans, that molecular SO2 level is a threat for, is a risk for hydrogen sulfide formation. So that is the, at least coming out of the research that we're doing in our group, that is the consideration that needs to be taken prior to canning right now to know what your molecular SO2 levels are. Um, and I guess we're hoping to publish our findings soon and then like maybe give some, I think, I think within that, like you could extrapolate 
kind of like guideline levels of molecular SO2. It's the kind of thing where like you can't, as a scientist, you can't really give a hard number because it depends. I can only give a hard number if I also give a hard number for every other factor of the wine, <laughs> at which point it's not super helpful to anybody. Sure. Um, but there were levels, you know, like beyond a certain level is like, yeah, things escalate quickly beyond this level. Things seem, you know, relatively stable in this range. Um, that might give people who were maybe on the fence about something like this is your higher risk option. This is a low risk option. Like that's the goal of a, a lot of our research, just to be able to give people as much, uh, decision-making power as possible. Um, so, uh, hopefully when I think I'm waiting, I'm currently waiting on the draft to like be able to look at it. Um, you know, our supervisor is, is, uh, doing his thing, my lab mate doing his thing. Um, and then I guess the draft will come to me and then I'll get a look at it. And hopefully we'll <laughs> be able to, hopefully we'll be able to put it out there. Like, uh, you know, we presented the findings in a couple of different conferences as we've gone along. Um, but it's like, you know, every couple of weeks we're like, Oh, there's something new that should be added. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the ultimate goal is to have like cutoff levels given a couple of like, uh, different parameters. So like, you know, wines of this alcohol range, wines of this pH range, wines of this SO2 range, molecular SO2 range, um, free SO2 range. This is a solution space that is probably good for Ken's. You know, like that's a, mm -hmm. as certain as you can say things in science. You, you can be like, <laughs> I am as sure as I can be given what I have access to that this will work. But, you know, science will sometimes there's always complications, but that's about as sure as we can be. So in terms of microbial stability in wines, um, other than SO2, what do you think people should be looking at? Because I know one of the canners that I've been speaking to, they as standard, they give a Velcrin wash to all their cans. Um, but then obviously you can't you'd call it organic or whatever. Are there, uh, mm -hmm. what, what, um, what alternatives to SO2 do you think are viable? I mean, I guess like, like, you know, you do yourself sterile filtration, um, I don't know. I, I mean, like, Valkyrin is effective. Like, there's, I am, like, less familiar with, I'm much less familiar with all of the products that are available, but the research on that is pretty solid. And, like, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of products available. And, like, if you have one that works for your wine, then, like, yeah, that's fine. Like, usually they're fine. <laughs> um, like, it's like from my point, especially because I'm like very much in a different segment of wine. Right. I almost look at that. I'm like, did it work? Great. Like, um, a bit like copper finding. <laughs> yeah, a bit like copper finding. I'm like, actually, this explains a lot about science and wine. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I don't, I, I don't personally have recommendations, not really having looked at it. Sure. Um, but, avoiding molecular SO2 with the information we have now avoiding molecular SO2 would be like the main recommendation coming out of our research. Mm -hmm. So whatever you have that works for your wine, otherwise probably would be like a, a reasonable next step. That being said, we've never tested a, you know, a lot of different, uh, We've never tested other uh, um, other uh, antimicrobial agents 
in a CAN system. I, I don't know how they interact with the CAN system. I don't know if they are, they have corrosive effects either to aluminum or even the um, polymer liner itself. So that is another, you know, uh, degree of complication in, in this system that, you know, I'm sure someone will research at some point. <laughs> it's like usually as soon as you create, uh, solve one problem, you create another one. Um, like coming up with better protective winemaking and, you know, uh, protective or reductive winemaking was a solution to having oxidative problems, but now we have reductive problems. So kind of, you know, is a cycle that keeps going like that. Now, one thing you mentioned earlier about sustainability with aluminium. Uh, are you aware of any really good research by anyone on the sustainability of aluminium versus glass or recycled plastic? Because I, I mean, intuitively, it feels like it should be. And, and like, obviously, it's lower uh, weight to move around and stuff like that. But is it more recyclable? Is, are there any, is, is it clear cut, like any of the research that you've seen? I am, I have read, I'm blanking on like, which which resource I read. Um, you don't have to name it like, off the top of your head. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like, I've definitely read a bit about it. Um, although I guess I am hoping to see something a bit more comprehensive mm. um, in the literature. So like you said, there's the weight issue. Um, so for an equivalent volume of wine, a can's about 30 times lighter. So that is one part of it. Um, aluminum itself is very recyclable. So that's the other thing when... Uh, I'm less familiar with the recyclability of glass, um, but I have like, you know, we've kind of considered aluminum compared to other types of glass, other types of alternatives to glass. And aluminum is effectively 100% recyclable. Like you get full grade aluminum back when you recycle aluminum, you can use it indefinitely versus um, plastic degrades when you recycle it. You can't make as high quality products with subsequent cycles of um, processing the product. And it has maybe a couple of cycles. And then you have, you know, end use products. You see like benches and you know, like park benches and stuff made from recycled plastic. You're not gonna be able to recycle that again. That's garbage when it's done its life cycle at that point. But aluminum is inf infinitely recyclable. Um, also for whatever reason we're, I guess people are quite used to recycling aluminum and there is good infrastructure for it in a lot of places. So there, the recycling rates for aluminum are higher than other types of, uh, are higher than for plastic, higher than for paper. Um, I saw one source quoted at 75%, but now that I think about it, I don't know what uh, geography that was in. Mm. I think it was based in North America, but I don't actually remember what geography it was. Um, so like, that's part of it. Just like our attitudes towards recycling aluminum are like stronger, like uh, better established. And then the material itself is more recyclable. Um, aluminum from a new aluminum perspective, not great, pretty destructive to mine aluminum or, um, to mine bauxite ore, but, um, just from like, uh, compared to other types of alternatives, Say so other things that are lighter than glass. It is, it seems to me, the one of the more favorable. Um, glass itself, I don't actually know how, what the recycling rates are on glass, so I can't really give a comparison in that. Other than 
even if it's equal to aluminum, it's much heavier. Sure. Well, look, I'm quite conscious of um of uh, my self-imposed time limit on this, <laughs> but there's one question I always like to uh, to finish on. Um, what do you think are the major causes of optimism in the wine world today, particularly in terms of um, the research that you're doing? I'm personally really excited about. Uh, I'm really excited about canned wines. I know that when I talk about it, it can sound a bit doom and gloom because <laughs> I'm just like, oh my gosh, these aromas. But I'm personally very excited uh, about the potential of that packaging for uh, smaller portioned servings and possibly a bit down the line, but like from a wine access and wine education standpoint, the ability to try things in smaller formats, I think makes wine a lot more accessible to, to people who want to learn about it. Uh, this idea that you can, you know, get a flight of wines in 187 mil format that is not too expensive to ship. Uh, Cause that's the thing with the smaller glass bottles. Like it's not that it's not really much more efficient to get smaller glass bottles and like price wise, it's never, it's never really proportional. Um, but, uh, I think there's great potential for the smaller, um, for smaller formats, uh, for like the, the lighter packaging and then like having, uh, having, a having cans, canned wines from, um, emerging, like uh, more emerging regions, emerging producers, like that you can, you know, there's a like mobile canners and uh, canning co-packers kind of thing. Um, just giving access to more types of wine um, for new consumers, for people to be able to learn about wine. Because uh, I think that like people will, uh, for a lot of people, just like wine is very difficult to get into. You know, it's so ex it can be so expensive and it can be very like, uh, you, it's hard to buy a flight for yourself. But, you know, when you deal with like really accessible, smaller, smaller sizes, I think that that could be a real way to get people more excited about wine. Um, not everyone should be in can, certainly, but I think there are so many that people could explore um, with that type of packaging. So like that's something that's I think is really exciting. Um, and we'll, you know, uh, yeah, I think it's just like giving people the opportunity to learn more about wine and to learn about uh, places they've never heard of. You know, give uh, wine is so so segmented. It's nice to be able to like that's what we can like about it. That's what we like about it, and I think this packaging fits nicely into that philosophy. Perfect. Oh well, Rachel, thank yeah. you so much for your time. That was amazing. That was absolutely fascinating. Okay, I hope I, I felt I felt a bit rambly, but hopefully there's something useful in there. <laughs> no, not at all. That was uh, that was that was fantastic. Thank you so much. And yeah, this is going to be crucial listening for people doing their um, uh, doing their P three. So yeah, this is this is this is great. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much for having me.